Amen. Well, that was fun. Well, good morning and welcome. Go ahead and take your seats, and uh, let me invite you to get your Bibles out, and you can start making your way to Genesis 14. Uh, Genesis 14. As you're making your way to uh, Genesis 14, I want to begin our time uh, by asking this question this morning. Have you ever been involved in a rescue? Ever been involved in a rescue, whether that's you helping to rescue someone else or where, where, whether you are being rescued by someone else? You start thinking about rescue. Uh, I certainly started thinking about different rescues in my life. I grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona. They get a lot of snow there. In fact, they got three feet about a week ago, and so a very common, simple rescue is you're pulling cars out of snowbanks. I've been on both sides of that a number of times. That's uh, a very common, simple rescue. Uh, but as I started thinking about other rescues in my life, I actually was taken back uh, to a time when I was 16 years old, uh, and really in a couple different ways that I was rescued by my uncle. Uh, so I had an aunt and uncle and a couple cousins that lived about an hour south of where I lived, uh, and I was 16. My cousin was 14 at the time. Uh, we were close. We'd always been close. And uh, so I was down there on, in, in the summer, and he and I decided that we were going to raft down I don't know, four or five, six miles of the Verde River. And so my aunt, uh, we, we dropped uh, my dad's truck uh, where we were going to get out. And then my aunt took us about four or five miles, drove us up with the raft, everything else we put in. Um, and it was a great day fishing and swimming and hanging out on the river until the end of the day where we missed our pullout spot. Uh, and I don't know exactly how far it was. It was probably uh, somewhere between a quarter and a half a mile that was a long way when you got to uh, lug all that gear back to the truck. Uh, two teenage boys who were exhausted don't exactly think with a lot of clarity. So we were like, you know what? We don't want to lug that all the way back to the truck. Let's just take the truck to the stuff, um, which would have been great if there was actually a passable way to get the truck to the riverbed, uh, although that didn't stop us from trying. Uh, because as I began to move or my, maneuver my dad's truck down this really steep embankment, it became clear to me. Uh, th th this ain't going to work. Problem was, at that point, I was on sand and I was stuck. The good news is, it was right between two huge trees. Uh, and so, uh, by God's providence, my uncle just happened to be in the area. I'm pretty sure he knew we were going to do something stupid. So he just showed up roughly when we were supposed to be getting out of the river. So he ran home, got his truck, pulled my dad's truck uh, out of being stuck. But in the process, because of the way that we were stuck, put a huge dent into the side of my dad's truck. And by huge, I mean it was about 18 to 20 inches long and probably three to four inches deep. So the, the, the small problem was getting the truck out of the ditch. The larger problem was my father not killing me when I got home. And I can remember, I was like, there's no point in going home. I'm literally going to be killed. And my uncle said, no, no, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And I said, I don't think you can take care of this. And he said, watch. And he called my dad. And within five minutes, they're laughing, and they're telling stories. My cousin and I are looking at each other like, how is this happening? My uncle gets off the phone. He goes, you're fine. You're going to be just fine. Now, I didn't believe it, but I'm obviously still here to tell the story, so I was not killed in the process. The reality is, actually, my dad never said anything, anything to me about it at all. See, in that moment, my uncle actually rescued me in a variety of ways, and that really is comparable to what we're going to see in Genesis 14 here this morning, because the text is going to detail Lot's rescue from certain doom through Abram's actions. Now, the account is going to give us a very different perspective uh, of Abram from what we have seen 
uh, over these last few weeks in chapters 12 and 13. And really what it's going to do in a lot of ways, it's going to direct us towards Jesus. And so here's uh, what chapter 14 is going to lead us to. Here's the main idea, that we are rescued from sure destruction through the decisive victory of Jesus. Let me say that again, that we are rescued from sure destruction through the decisive victory of Jesus. And so before we go any further, we would do well to stop. Uh, we're going to uh, go, go before the Lord in prayer, uh, asking God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, all that he has for us here this morning. So why don't you join me uh, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Father, we're praying that in these next few moments, God, first of all, that your word would do your work. God, that your word would penetrate our hearts and our minds and accomplish the good work that you want to do within us. Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would give us eyes that see, ears that would hear, hearts that would know and understand what it is that you are leading us to this morning. God, that you would come and meet us in the specific place that we're at. God, the word that we need from you today, God, we pray that you would graciously give it to us. Uh, God, that you would accomplish what you want to do within us. And God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, this morning, praying for our neighbors, uh, for gospel light right down the street. We pray that you'd be moving and working in them. And Pastor Brent Lenentine, God, that you would be uh, enabling them to honor and glorify you in all things in the same way that we desire that you would do that in us. And so God, come now, have your way. Do the good work that only you can do in and through your people and in and through your word. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. All right, title of the message this morning is The Rescue of God, The Rescue of God. And again, this idea that we are rescued from sure destruction through the decisive victory of Jesus. Now, admittedly, this passage uh, is quite different, uh, really, from what we're going to see in a lot of uh, this section of Genesis, this whole Abram uh, account. And so what I want to do is I want to just walk us through. We'll take uh, longer than we typically would to just walk through the passage itself uh, because th there really is some explanation that is warranted. A lot of names, a lot of places, a lot of people that for, for most of us were probably confused, don't really know uh, what's going on. So we're going to walk through, bring some explanation, then we will step back and look at the whole passage in more of a preaching manner. So bear with me uh, as we make our way through this. Uh, but in chapter 14, there really is this major shift in the account, in the narrative. Uh, and for a large part of the chapter, uh, what, what, what uh, Moses focuses on is this international conflict that's unfolding between these various foreign entities. And for a lot of this, we're going, okay, that's, that's fine, but what does this have to do with Abram? What does this have to do with the promise and all that God is unfolding? And eventually, when we get to the end, we see uh, how it all relates. So look at your Bibles. Um, a lot of names, a lot of places, and I don't know about you, but sometimes names and places in the Bible uh, can be kind of tricky to say. So here's the rule of thumb. When you come to names and places in the Bible, say them quickly, say them confidently. Most people don't know if you're saying them right or not. Okay, so I'm going to model that for us uh, right here as we move through this passage. Here we go, chapter 14. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. It says this, <clears throat> in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedoloamer, king, uh, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Now stop right there for a second. A lot of names, a lot of places, and we're probably like, what does that even mean? Let me just bring a little explanation that might be helpful. So the, the kings in verse 1, 
These four kings, uh, we're going to refer to them as the kings of the east or the eastern kings. Uh, These kings are are all over in like the Babylonian area. So present-day Iran, present-day Iraq, uh, that area. And these four are are going to come and battle against the the five kings that are mentioned in verse 2. We'll refer to them as the kings of the west. Uh, And these these kings are all located right around the Dead Sea. Okay, so, so uh, near the promised land, in that area, uh, near uh, Abram, Lot, uh, those people. Uh, and, and so what happens is the, 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 the kings of the east, more international in scope, uh, larger, more powerful, uh, the kings of the west, more of a localized entity, which makes sense because when you look at verse 3 and 4, notice what it says. It says, And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, twelve years they had served Ketolomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And so what is this service and rebellion that they're speaking of? Well, it is likely a tribute, a tribute that would be paid. Now, a tribute uh, was a payment that kings or nations uh, would make to other kings and to other nations. It was a common practice uh, in in the ancient uh, Middle East, uh, and really it served both as a tax uh, as well as uh, you can think of almost like payment for protection that the smaller, weaker countries would make this payment to the larger, stronger countries, and it was a form of protection. Uh, and, and other countries in the area would know that, so they'd know, hey, if we attack these guys, what it means is we're really signing up to also fight with these other guys. And so for whatever reason, these kings of the West are like, we're done, and the kings of the East are like, well, that's a problem, because we're not going to let that happen. So look at verse 5. It says, in the 14th year, Keto Lormer and all the kings who were with him came, and then they're going to name a number of other places that aren't related to either of these groups. So it says this, that they came and they defeated the Rephaim and Ashroth Kirnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Sheva Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon, Tamar. And so here's what's going on. They begin to go, and you have to understand, they can't just go from the east to the west, through western Iraq, eastern Syria. That is a, just an impassable desert. So they take a route very comparable to what Abram took, up north, uh, and then back down through the whole Jordan, Transjordan uh, area. And so in coming first to this group in verses 6 and 7, uh, what these kings of the east do is they first, they, they subdue those tribes and those groups on their way to the kings of the west. And you might say, why? Why would they do that? Well, there's actually a few reasons why they would do that. One is it ensures, it ensures that there's not going to be any surprises uh, after they defeat the kings of the west. They're like, hey, we're just going to eliminate all threats in the area. Uh, and, and it ensures that they're not going to have conflict on their way home, right, that they can return in peace. Uh, it also would establish a route between the, Euph- the Euphrates and the Nile, which could have been uh, very, very strategic in the day. So it really is a great plan from a military perspective. Uh, but, but then secondly, in verses 8 through 10, the second part of the plan is to deal with the kings of the West, right? So in verse 8 and following, uh, we see them go into battle. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedolomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. And then notice how the battle goes. Verse 10, now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, that's like a tar pit, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. And so, so not only do the kings of the east do they have a military advantage, but the terrain itself 
is aiding them in their conquest because these kings of the West are falling into these tar pits, which I didn't know this till this week, but tar and asphalt are actually native to the Dead Sea, right? So, so the geography is playing a role in what's unfolding uh, as well. And so you notice the result of this in verse 11, it says, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way right? Conquered, they've conquered, they've, they've dealt with them, check, 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 check. And you're like, that's great. What does this have to do with Abram and the promise? And Moses is like, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you, look at verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. See, this is where the story all of a sudden comes into focus. Where we're like, oh, Abram's nephew has been captured and dispossessed. And did you notice, did you notice what the Bible said? He's not living near Sodom, or is he living? In Sodom. He's in Sodom. Right? He's made that move, uh, which now at this point he has completely departed from the promised land. And so verse 13 to 16 uh, detail Abram's response. Uh, and, and this is a little more self-explanatory. Let me just read it, and then we'll start working our way through the text in total. It says, then... Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. And so Abram goes, right, he pursues uh, these kings of the east, he, he defeats them, uh, he, he, he gets Lot, his possessions, his people, and, and returns. So really quite different quite different from what we've seen in chapters 12 and chapter 13. Far more of a warrior, um, conqueror mentality that we see in Abram. And yet, loved ones, there are some rich truths in this passage if we are willing to see and do the work and tease out all that God has for us. Uh, So with that, let me just remind us, right, main idea, we're rescued from sure destruction through the decisive victory of Jesus. And so with that, let's start working through here uh, this uh, this, this section, three things I want us to highlight. The first is this, it's the weakness of earthly kingdoms. The weakness of earthly kingdoms. Now, now, now most of this passage has to do with this, this international conflict and warfare. And it's revealing for us the, the, the weakness, the inherent weakness in earthly kingdoms. In fact, notice a couple of aspects that we see in the passage with respect to earthly kingdoms. First of all, this, that earthly kingdoms are characterized by rebellion and war. This was normal. This was typical. Right? This was a common reality for people in that day. And you think about this, this idea of you have to pay a tribute to another nation. And if you didn't keep that tribute, then invasion or attack or war was going to break out. I mean, just think about a tribute in general. This notion of, I'm going to pay this other country, this tax, and it feels akin to you know, paying the mafia or some gang, uh, they're cut so that nothing bad happens to you. It just feels, it's, just, it's that on an international level. It feels like a form of theft. But for whatever reason, whatever, whatever motivation, these kings of the West are like, we're done paying this tribute. 
And so the kings of the east, right, this is not some random act of aggression. They're actually pursuing this lack of payment. This is a violation. They might even see this as treasonous. And what this all reveals is inherent, this inherent instability in earthly kingdoms. That's part of what God's Word is reminding us of here, which is important for all of us to be reminded of because even the earthly kingdom that we live in right now is also instable. It's unstable. It's not as secure as we'd like to believe that it is. And yet here's one of the things that I found fascinating thinking about the the, the instability of of, of earthly kingdoms, this rebellion, this war. There's a facet in this where the people of the Bible in both the Old Testament, because this is pervasive in the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, they were familiar, they were intimately familiar with warfare. And so it helped to drive home both the commonality and the regularity of it, as well as the pervasiveness of the imagery of spiritual warfare in their life. So when you think about Ephesians chapter 6, right, really the preeminent passage on spiritual warfare, there was a familiarity for all those people uh, with respect to war. They were used to it. They saw it. They were exposed to it. They they were around it. It wasn't uncommon to them. In fact, it was quite normative in their life. And so their familiarity with warfare helped them to understand and have a familiarity with the reality of spiritual warfare in their life as well. And maybe for us, we need that reminder that spiritual warfare is not this rare, sporadic, occasional thing, but it is a frequent, regular ongoing occurrence in our life. Loved ones, this is the proper way for us to think about spiritual warfare. In fact, John Piper has this great quote. Here's what he says. He says, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. He's saying the whole of life, the whole of this life is war. We're at war with the cosmic powers. We're at war with the enemy, right? And how you handle war is very differently than how you live in peacetime. And our life is full of spiritual warfare. So let us be pressed, let us be challenged to see the frequency of war for what it is. And further, don't be deterred or disappointed when tempting or when temptation or testing or frustration comes, right? That, that, that we're caught off guard by it. And that, that, that's one of the issues, particularly for us in, in, in our setting, is man, I'll watch believers get thrown off, they're shocked. That spiritual warfare is a thing. And yet the argument that, that, that is even emerging here in Genesis 14 is, no, no, this was common. See, life for the ancients, it helped them to see this with clarity. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves, am I seeing this with clarity? Do I understand that inherent in earthly kingdoms, right, there's this instability. It's characterized by rebellion and war. And it's helping us to know that all of our life, all of our life is, is, is shrouded and captured in spiritual warfare. But not only that, notice, make note of this as well. In the last few verses of this section that we see that there's a threat of dispossession and abduction. Right? Part of this instability, part of the weakness of earthly kingdoms is, is you, you can't guarantee security. You can't. We live in the most secure nation on the planet. And you know what we can't guarantee? is security. And we might want to tell ourselves, and there's certainly a lot that we should be thankful for and appreciative of, uh, that, that makes our land as secure as it is. 
But man, some of you know a whole lot more than I do about what's really going on because of your job. And what you know is that legitimate threats exist. There was no way for Lot to entirely um, um, prevent himself or insulate himself from this happening. He's he's abducted. He's looted. It's this stunning twist in the story. Like, where'd that come from? And how quickly things fall apart for him. As it goes for Sodom and Gomorrah, so it goes for Lot. Because earthly kingdoms will always be assailed by threats. It's unavoidable. Now with Lot, you think about Lot, here's what what we're seeing, the culmination of Lot. And we'll talk about this more here in a few moments. But just make note of this, that his departure, his departure from Abram and his departure from the promised land is a forfeiture of the divine protection of God. Did you hear that? When he forfeited the promise, when he departed from Abram, and and really by extension from the Lord, he forfeits the divine protection that comes from God. And so so when you think about that, all, all I can say to you is this, church, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot emphasize enough the need for you and I to be completely and entirely yielded and surrendered to God's word, to God's will, and to God's commands. That was Lot's issue. Right? He didn't do it, and it put him in this predicament. So here's, here's really the question you've got to wrestle with. Is God's word the final word for me? Is God's word the final word for me? Is God's word the ruling word in my life? Is God's word the authoritative word over all, over all other words? And as you think about that, just consider this. Do you understand? Do you understand the cost? Do you understand the dangers? of failing to be entirely submitted to God's word because Lot did not, and that's how we ended up here. The weakness of earthly kingdoms. Now notice this, secondly, we see Abram's rescue, and yeah, let me, let me just run to the finish line here uh, right out of the gate. Abram's rescue foreshadows King Jesus' rescue of us. That's the destination, okay? Uh, Abram is acting very kingly, in this passage. And yet there's a very purposeful connection that Moses is making in verses 13 through 16 um, that, 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 that is helpful for us. Let me say it this way. You and I cannot do what Abram does in verses 13 through 16. We can't do it. right? Not in the sense that the Bible wants to employ or utilize what's happening in this passage. And here's what I mean by that. If we try to spiritualize, we try to moralize what's happening in this text, what am I going to tell you? To put on your gear and go to battle? You're going to end up in the street getting arrested or shot. Like that, that's how that's going to play out this week. And that's not the point. Right? The larger point is, is, is the purpose that God's word is driving to is this, that Abram is a type of Christ. And the type, right? typology, what, what, what is that? What does that mean? Well, well a type or, or a typology is someone or something who foreshadows or represents one who is to come. So Abram is actually going to give us categories by which we can understand Jesus. Abram is going to emulate uh, the victorious king that Jesus is going to be. And so as we think about this, we have to be able to separate the application and the implication in our life with respect to the Christological realities that are actually unfolding here in Genesis 14. So we have to first address what Abram is doing, then we can come back and talk about what this means in your life and in my life. 
Abram's acting like the true king here. In fact, we'll see that in spades next week, uh, but we'll let next week be next week. But he's here, he's here being uh, foreshadowing or typological of Jesus. And so really, whatever we see of Abram is actually going to be true and better in Jesus. Let me give you three ways that we see this here in verses 13 through 16. First of all, Abram's courageous initiation, his courageous initiation. Right? So upon hearing, verse 13, Abram gets the news. Verse 14, he begins to act. Right? When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Right? He, he, he hears what's happening. He courageously acts. Now, now, he doesn't have to do anything. There's no requirement for him to act. But upon hearing this news of what has happened a lot, he courageously initiates solely for the well-being of his nephew. He chooses of his own accord to pursue these enemies. And don't miss this. Lot didn't deserve this. Lot was not owed this. Right? Lot's not like, well, Abram, you better hurry up. No, no. Abram initiates this action and this rescue of his own accord which is exactly what God does for you and I. This is exactly what God does for us, right? You and I are not owed Jesus' death in our place. You and I are not owed the redemption that comes through the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. We are not owed the reconciliation and redemption and being brought into the family of God to be adopted as sons and daughters. We're not owed any of that. But praise God, we receive that And that happens because God initiates by sending Jesus on our behalf to save us. Because this is why we can't be Abram. We can't save ourselves. This can only be Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can do this. The Bible's clear. right? Rob was up here just a moment ago reading from Romans 5 that God initiates while we're still sinners. We're dead in our sin. And God initiates by sending Jesus. And so if, if, if you're here today, this morning, and you are not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus. Let me just try to be really clear on this. Here's what you must know, is that God is graciously and proactively pursuing you, that he initiates for your well-being so that you can be saved. He doesn't owe you that. You don't deserve that. You haven't earned that, but God is doing that because God initiates And the proper response to God's initiation is that you and I would respond in faith, that we would believe what Christ has done for us, and that we would follow him with the entirety of our lives. And if you're here today as a believer, man, let this reminder, let let, let this reminder, let gratitude flow out of you, that God has initiated In spite of our sin, he is pursuing us in spite of our rebellion. Praise God for this, this courageous initiation. But that's not all that we see. Notice this. Secondly, in verse 14, we see Abram's extensive investment. Right? So you see Abram, and he he starts to gear up, and and he has all his men gear up, and and, and they start to pursue. Man, they're going off. They're heading out. And so Abram is investing. First of all, he's investing himself. He is putting his life and his well-being on the line. But it's not just himself. He's got these 318 guys that that, that are his most loyal and faithful guys. They they were born in his home. They they, they came up in his home. He's been deeply invested in them as well. He's literally putting everything on the line. He's investing all that he has to rescue Lot 
don't miss this. God invests His Son, the totality of His Son, so that you and I can be saved. And loved ones, we could run all over the Bible, highlighting all the different places of the cost, the, the, the extensive investment that God had to make on our behalf. And man, I, th- I think one of the best places is actually what we see of Jesus in the garden. Remember Jesus in the garden? Right, it just reveals how costly this was. Right, so agonized, so agonized by what was in front of him that he, 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 as he prayed, he sweated drops of blood. I've never sweated drops of blood. Anyone here ever sweated drops of blood? No, we, we haven't. And yet Jesus is sweating drops of blood in order to save us. Jesus will pray to the Father, God, if possible, if possible, take this cup from me. Of course, he knows that can't be the case. And so he will ultimately give his life in exchange for us. He will die as a ransom in our place. It's costly. It's extensive, the investment that God makes in us. In fact, church, don't miss this. God is more invested in you than you are. God is more invested in you than you are. Right? He's, he's put it all on the line. Abram's putting it on the line. The Lord has put it on the line. Praise God. Right? Praise God for his extensive investment within us. But then notice thirdly, how we see the true and better Jesus being modeled by Abram here. Look at verse 15 and 16. We see Abram's decisive victory. His decisive victory. It says, And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. This is roughly 100 miles from where Abram was. right? So he's making a major move to get to these people. And then it says in verse 16, don't miss this, Then he brought back, what's that next word? Look at your Bibles. What's the next word? All. Not some. Not most. No, he got it all. He got all the possessions and his kinsmen with his possessions and the women and the people. Nothing's left behind. This is a decisive victory. And, And let me just remind you, don't forget, this was the same group of people who just smoked the entire region. They just toasted the entire region. And Abram and his 300 dudes come out here and crush them. Now, of course, we understand part of this is tied to the mighty hand of God at work within this. But here's what we can't miss. This is a clear and decisive victory that belongs to Abram in the same way that there is a clear and decisive victory that belongs to Jesus. As Abram left, no doubt, Jesus has and Jesus will leave, no doubt. He will be victorious. Now, there's this, this weird thing in our day and age, this, this weird tension around our perception of Jesus. And it tends to be really polarizing. Um, and as people, we tend to run or to gravitate towards one end of the spectrum or the other. So, so one end of the spectrum, and they're both equally true and both equally important with respect to Christ. But on one end of the spectrum, you have where Jesus is, is, is meek and mild and humble and gentle and lowly. And praise God for that. And praise God that that's true. But on the other end of the spectrum, equally true of Jesus, you have that Jesus is a mighty warrior. That he's a conquering king. Right? This ferocious general who goes into battle. Both are true. Now, unequivocally, in the text here in Genesis 14, the side of mighty warrior conquering king is what is being exemplified in the passage. 
And loved ones, I, I would argue we need this, we need this reminder. Because there is this, this, this um, slide where, where we're being lulled more and more uh, to, to this one side where, right, Jesus is humble and he's meek and he's lowly, but, but that, then the perception gets kind of twisted. And, and here's how it gets twisted, is that the, 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 the gentleness of Jesus becomes the softness and the passivity of Jesus. And he's kind of this pushover. And he's this weak, passive pushover of a man who doesn't really want to rock the boat. That ain't Jesus. Okay, Abram chases these clowns down and by force recovers Lot and his possessions and his people. I mean, honestly, this is stuff of movies right here. And what he's what Moses is helping us understand is that Jesus is the mighty warrior who will have the decisive victory. He's going to conquer. He's going to reign. And, and, and as you think about this tension, don't forget, Jesus is the guy who flipped tables over in the temple. Jesus is the guy who created a whip, wasn't afraid to use it. Jesus is the guy who would lambast the religious leaders and call out their hypocrisy and their empty, dead religion. That's Jesus. In fact, here, you want to think about the, the, the decisive victory of Jesus? Join me in Revelation 19. Come with me just a minute. You need to see this. Oh, I love this passage. Revelation 19. I'm going to start in verse 11. Now listen to the language. A lot of military war language that gets employed as John writes about Jesus. Uh, Revelation 19, I'm going to start in verse 11. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he gives high fives and side hugs. Oh no, that's not what it says. What does it say? It says he judges and makes war. And he's coming to fight. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's not graphic. And, by, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who's coming back, right? That's the one who's coming back. That's not someone you mess around with. You don't want anything to do with this guy. God's coming to fight. That's the point. God's coming to fight. In the Old Testament, there's a title that is given to the Lord in a variety of places. It's the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts denotes that God is the leader of this host of an angelic army. Now think about that. This whole uh, angelic army. You just consider, think about God and all these angels. They're not coming for a tea party. Right? They're not coming for a dinner show. Man, they are coming to have a decisive, conclusive victory, which, by the way, loved ones, that is our hope and our anchor in the nonsense of this world, that Jesus is going to win in the end. He's going to deal with all of this. And so as you look at what Abram's doing here, that's why it can't be us. It can't be you and I, because we're not coming back. We're not going to save. We're not going to rescue. Jesus is the conquering king. Right? Abram is, is just helping us to have a category to understand what Christ is ultimately going to do. 
And so now, now that we've established the Christological aspects that we see in Abram, let's just take our last couple of moments and let's make some application with respect to our lives. Because there actually is uh, quite a bit of uh, application that comes from this passage. Now, what I'm not going to tell you is to be like Abram, because you can't be like Abram. He's pointing us to Jesus. Uh, But there is a lot of things here for you and I with respect to how we live our life here and now. Let me give you four, and we'll spend the remainder of our time walking through these items. Here's the first. Rejecting God and His Word has long-term consequences. Rejecting God and His Word has long-term consequences. We see this with Lot. And listen, 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 listen. Lot put himself in this precarious position the moment, the moment that he defied or denied what God had said previously. He put himself in this precarious situation when he defied and denied what God said. In chapter 13, he didn't pursue the promise. He didn't pursue the word. He pursued what he saw. He pursued what looked good. And so from that moment and every other moment after that, it creates this cascading effect that's going to culminate in his capture and in his loss. Now listen carefully. Listen carefully. He made a small compromise that resulted in a large consequence. You hear that? He made a small compromise that resulted in a large consequence. That's what happens for every single person who wants to defy, deny, uh, diminish, undermine what God is telling us in his word. Right? The small compromises led to large consequences. And, and, and here's what you have to keep in mind, loved ones, is that one of the dangers uh, with respect to defiance of God and his word is that sometimes the consequences and the implications of those decisions are not always immediate. So think of it like this. Like if, if you go into the kitchen and you got the stove on and, and, and you've got it turned up on high, if you, if you put your hand on that stove, the nerves in your fingers are immediately telling you, move the hand, right? It hurts. This is uncomfortable. Sin's not always like that. In fact, oftentimes sin is not at all like that. Like sometimes you, you defy God and, and you're not caught right away. You're not exposed right away. It doesn't hurt right away. Like sometimes, sometimes you can get away with it for, for years or even decades, whether it be exposed or, or whether the, the fullness of the pain. Further, sometimes, sometimes the immediate feedback loop that we get with respect to sin is actually, this is kind of fun. This is kind of enjoyable. I, I, I like this. This is pleasurable. And so the danger is we can delude ourselves into thinking that defiance to God's word is somehow not a big deal or that it doesn't have severe and massive consequences. Loved ones, it does. Just because you don't see it right away doesn't mean that it doesn't have massive implication. And I'm sure for a lot, as he crept closer and closer to Sodom, he did not envision being subdued, captured, and plundered. Yet that's exactly what happened. This is what denying God's word brings. And so your decisions today will impact your life tomorrow. Rejecting God's word always, always, always has long-term consequences. That is always the case. So loved ones, be very, very careful. Be very careful. You don't get short-sighted on God's word and that there's this rejection or defiance or an ignorance of God's word thinking that it will somehow not bring consequence. It always will. Rejecting God's word has long-term consequences. Here's the second thing we see. It's that the power and the reach of God's promise is strong. The power and reach of God's promise is strong. This is actually meant to be a word of comfort and hope for us. It's meant to remind us of God's strength and his power watching over us. 
Right? Now, so the kings of the east, they get in trouble the moment that they start messing with Lot. It was them taking Lot. That's what motivated Abram to act. We see that in verse 14. Right? When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken. Oh, you, you took my guy? No, man, now we, now we got to go. And so the mistreatment of Lot, here's what's going on, is an extension of opposing Abram, which leads us back to the promise of God in Genesis 12. You remember what God said there? For those who dishonor you, I will what? Curse. This is the curse of God falling on these kings of the east. See, because you messed with Abram, like, we're going to mess with Abram. Eh, you, you got close enough. You messed with his nephew. Because you messed with his nephew, now you have to deal with the curse. The point being that the power and the reach of God's promise, it's strong and it's large. Right? The power of God's promise is seen in Abram defeating these multiple armies with him and 318 guys. That God enabled him to defeat them. The reach of God's promise is seen in Lot, that despite Lot's faithlessness, God is still faithful and pronounces this curse upon these other kings. It's speaking to God's extensive reach. See, Lot's connection to Abram is enough to warrant a curse upon the kings for abducting him. See, the power and the reach of God's promise is strong, it is large, it is massive, and it is very much in play in your life and in my life. Isaiah says in Isaiah 59 that God's hand is not shortened, that it cannot, that it cannot save. And so, loved ones, be comforted by God's power and, and, and its reach as it pertains to your life and to your situation. See, our relationship to God puts us within that power and within that reach. Think of it like this. How many of you grew up in a neighborhood where you had a neighborhood bully? Come on, raise your hands. Man, y'all live charmed lives. Stu Priggy came up after first service and he goes, I actually was the neighborhood bully. <laughs> I couldn't raise my hand. So maybe some of you, that's what's going on, okay? Uh, but, but I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood. Now, actually, my sister was actually the enforcer in the neighborhood, um, but it wasn't unprovoked. It always happened if you messed with one of her brothers or you got smart with her. But we, we had a couple kids in our neighborhood who just, they were, they were punks. They were bullies. In fact, one of them lived next door to us for a little while. His name was Sterling. Now, Sterling didn't mess with me because he didn't want to deal with my sister. Uh, but he would mess with other younger kids. And so I remember one day he had messed with some, some boys who were new to the neighborhood um, and this confrontation uh, unfolded in, in, in the driveway right next to mine. So I was actually just out front, uh, happy to watch this unfold. And so these other, these other kids, their dad, man, he looked like a, a, like a, a superhero. I, I think this guy just ate steel. I think that's the only thing he ate, just muscles on muscles on muscles, this huge hulking figure. And I remember thinking like, oh, Sterling's dad might legitimately die here, like if, if things go uh, the wrong way. And so back and forth they went over their sons and what was going on. But, but the dad, remember the dad said to Sterling's father, he said, you find a way to deal with your son or I'm going to deal with you. No surprise, there was never an issue again between Sterling and those, those other boys, right? Like problem solved, see the power and the reach. Now, God's promise is infinitely larger, infinitely stronger. So, loved ones, no one gets to bully the children of God. No, no, no one gets to come at you and I without the Lord coming back at them saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to play that way. Like the power and the reach of God's promise is strong. Thirdly, what we see here in this passage, we see God's unconditional faithfulness to sinners. Lot was entirely unfaithful. Yet the Lord continued in faithfulness to Lot. 
Lot did not deserve protection. He did not deserve rescue. He did not deserve restoration of anything. And yet he received all of it. Why? Because God's not a conditional God. God doesn't base his goodness or his care on whether or not we've earned it or whether or not we deserve it. In fact, if we did, we'd never see it. And Paul's very clear in telling us in Ephesians 2, right? It's when we were dead. That's when God brought us to life in Jesus. God's unconditional faithfulness to sinners. Now, now there's this weird thing. Maybe it's not weird. It's, it's actually a very normal thing we do. But when it comes to stories, we love to identify with characters in the story. It's a very human thing to do, right? We want to connect to stories in the character. So let me help you make the proper connection to the proper character in this story. You are not Abram. Who are you? Tell me, who are you? We're Lot. That's who we are. We're the people who don't deserve rescue, who have not earned rescue, uh, and by no means are we capable of saving ourselves. and yet because God is unconditionally faithful, He rescues us. And so, loved one, just, just remember that God loves you even in your sin, that God will preserve His covenant even when you don't, that God will redeem you even in your rebellion, and that God offers gracious care amidst our sin. Praise God for this. God's unconditional faithfulness to sinners. Here's the final thing. We've already really drilled down on this, but it's worth repeating one more time. It's this, that God will rescue his people. God will rescue his people. He's going to be victorious. He's going to fulfill the mission. He's going to win. And what we see Abram doing, he's foreshadowing what God is going to ultimately do in Jesus. But as I say that, let me just say this. Don't conflate, don't confuse God's rescue as primarily or even exclusively physical or temporal. Right? The rescue of God is a spiritual rescue. The physical rescue simply speaks to the greater rescue that God will accomplish. Do you remember Mark chapter 2? That story of the paralytic. And, and, and the friends wanted their, their, their buddy to get healed. And so, so they bring this paralytic to Jesus. And it's so crowded, like they can't, they, they, they can't even get to Jesus. So they cut a hole uh, in the roof of the home. I'm sure the homeowner loved that, all right? And then they drop the paralytic down, and he comes down. He's right in front of Jesus, this dramatic moment. And what does everyone want Jesus to say? They say, man, pick up your mat and walk. But what does Jesus say? Sins are forgiven, right? And here's the craziness of that story. Everyone in the room is disappointed. Like the friends are like, no, we just wanted him to be healed. All, right, all the bystanders are like, we wanted to see a miracle. The religious leaders are furious. And yet what Jesus did in that moment, that was the greater rescue. See, that was the rescue that was needed. The physical rescue that comes a few verses later simply proved the spiritual rescue that had already taken place. See, our confidence is in God's rescue of us. Not that we're going to be spared from harm or even death, but that we're rescued from the wrath that we deserve. That's the rescue we need. That, praise God, is the rescue that's accompanied in and through Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your rescue. We thank you for Christ and his work on our behalf. Father, we're thankful that it doesn't depend upon us. God, we know we're incapable of saving ourselves. And yet we look at Lot, we see your incredible rescue of him and how it reminds us, really points us forward to the great rescue that you have for us. So Father, would you help us to live in the fullness of that, to trust that? God, to be so, so deeply grateful and thankful 
uh, for your redeeming and atoning work. God, that we're secured in you. Father, would you help us to know with great confidence uh, the, the surety of your rescue. Uh, grateful for what you've done on our behalf. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.